please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is the fourth, I believe, in a short series of messages on the subject of Christian hope. We have considered the fact that it is the saints' perpetual posture in this world to be waiting in hope for something that he does not here and now possess and for something that his deepest heart longs to possess. We have identified that hope as being the strong and firm confidence that what God has promised and begun in his Son regarding our everlasting salvation, he will indeed perfect till the end and finish. We have seen something of the benefits of possessing such a hope as it affects everything in our lives, both our our afflictions, our temptations, and the sense of frustration that we often feel in the presence of apparent delay in waiting for God to answer prayer or deliver us from varying struggles and trials. Then we've begun to consider, among other things, lastly, the cultivation of Christian hope. And the reason that I'm taking the time to concentrate on this particular aspect of it is because Christian hope, though it is rooted and grounded upon objective principles that never change on the finished work of Christ and the veracity of God's everlasting word, which will never change or never diminish, nonetheless, Christian hope also has a subjective dimension that it is every Christian's privilege and duty to cultivate that hope so that it is breast it grows. Hope is, by definition, something that is felt, something that is possessed, something that is believed, something that makes a difference in my heart and countenance. And it is a variable commodity. It may be increased. It may wane. It may be uh, nearly snuffed out. But when it's rooted on biblical principle, uh, it stays. Yet many in our day, as it has been the case of Christians in every generation, lag behind in manifesting the fruit of such a hope. They live as though they do not possess that hope, or at least often they function as though such a hope doesn't exist. And so it's our desire and motivation to help you to cultivate within yourself this strong hope whereby you have laid hold on the refuge which is set before us in our Lord Jesus Christ. In order to do it, we've taken this passage in Colossians chapter 3, having read again last week that definitive text in Romans 8 where it says that we were saved in hope and that hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? But if we wait or hope in that which we do not see, then we with endurance wait for it. And so out of that Romans 8 passage, we focused our attention on Colossians 3, the first 17 verses, as a sort of survey on the way in which the Christian may strengthen in his own perception this commodity called hope, and thereby make his living in this world fruitful rather than fruitless, and joyful rather than doubtful and miserable. It is our desire that you enjoy with full confidence the Lord Jesus Christ rejoicing in hope of glory 
with joy unspeakable and full of glory because you set your eyes on him whom you've not seen, but on whom you love. Now, what we saw in the passage in Colossians last week had to do with the repudiation of earthly allurements as the first way for a Christian to cultivate his hope. Now, what I want to do now, because I'm looking at the faces of about four of you, I want you all to stand to your feet and get about three or four deep breaths. I know you're just getting your kids in shape. I hereby rebuke any snoring on the part of anyone. If you are sitting near, in front of, behind, or next to anybody who begins to breathe and the uvula begins to vibrate and the lungs begin to get that deep, relaxed sense of uh, breath, whether he's two or 92, you are assigned by your elders to stop it in whatever gentle and permanent way you may do so. If it distracts you by snoring, it'll have to distract you a bit by giving a little tap on the forehead or on the back of the head. Don't allow it to happen. And uh, get a breath, let the blood circulate, uh, stretch a bit, and then sit back down. I'm, I'm aware that it's warm. You think it's hot where you are. It's very hot up here where the uh, air seems to hover under the lights. But uh, And I think I'm going to be doing a little more work than you in this next few minutes. So I trust that you will discipline yourself when the, the drowsies begin to set in. You pay attention to yourself enough to straighten the back, take two or three deep chest breaths, and uh, get things working a bit with the oxygen. Now, for all the rest of you, I just gave you a free break. But for you who really struggle with staying awake, for whether it's sinus medication or poor discipline of habit yesterday or, or just your own makeup, I want to assist you in hearing from the beginning what we want to preach because I want you to know what it means to have a vibrant Christian hope in your heart. I don't want you to be as frequently depressed as some of you are. I don't want some of you to have to struggle with doubts as often as you do. And I want you to be able to look to Christ quickly and easily. Again, please read with me after this lengthy introduction for our sermon Something of Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. If then you were raised together with Christ, and the better translation that literally would be since then, you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are upon the earth. For you died... And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall be manifested, then shall you also with him be manifested in glory. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake comes the wrath of God upon the Son's of disobedience, wherein you also once walked when you lived in these things, but now do you also put them all away? Anger, wrath, malice, railing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his doings, and have put on the new man that is being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there cannot be Greek and Jew circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondman, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as God's elect, holy 
and beloved, a heart of compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving each other. If any man have a complaint against any, even as the Lord forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also you were called in one body. And be you thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. And whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now again, let's please bow together and ask the Lord's help in His Word. O oh Lord, you yourself know our hearts. There is nothing hid from your holy eye. So we ask that now you would search our hearts by your word, that you would send your Holy Spirit of truth to deal with us in the inward man and to make your word to have a place there that rules it. O oh God, take from us all our lethargy and distractions, Take from us our sinful negligence in heeding your word. Take from us the presumption that thinks that we have so much abundance of the preaching of your word we need not give ourselves regularly, studiously, energetically to it and help us in our weakness both to preach it as it ought to be preached, to hear it and obey it as it ought to be heard and obeyed. God of God, God of grace, come and relieve us and deliver us from those things in us and around us that militate against our growth in grace and that blind the minds of poor unconverted sinners from the light of the gospel of Christ which saves. O oh Lord, make the truth to rule in every heart, even in the heart of our children. Help us to give attendance. Help me speak with liberty and boldness the truth and grace us with your presence to receive it as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We cited the first of three ways which we believe to be necessary ways for a man or a woman or a young Christian to cultivate in his or her heart the hope that is the possession of every saint of God. And the first thing we cited was the repudiation of earthly allurements. In order to possess a growing hope, in order to cultivate and build in your heart confidence in the word of God and the joy and gratitude that comes from that confidence, it is absolutely essential that we put away the things of the earth that allure us. And we noted the way it was divided up in the texts. In Colossians 2b, not 
on the things that are upon the earth. We're supposed to put our affection and thinking, but upon the things in heaven. And then in verses 5 through 10, something of a breakdown of those things that are characteristic of the earthly mind, the earthly affection, the worldly man. The worldly and earthly minded man has two broad areas of overt and fruitful iniquity that show up in his life. The first, the broad area of sensuality. And we saw in those verses the carnal pleasures that were enumerated. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. Those prurient, sweeping longings and feelings that so captivate our hearts and minds that it takes very little to send us into passionate longings after the satiation of those lower appetites. We can hardly resist everything in the world as being an implement and an instrument in leading us into mental, heartfelt, and eventually physical fornication and all manner of uncleanness. So those carnal pleasures made up the first section of the sensual man. The other side of sensuality, though, was worldly goods, covetousness, which is idolatry. We're to put it away. Because not only do the lust of the eyes uh, find themselves longing for the lower interest of the prurient man, but also things in the world make us wish to possess them, and we begin to long after worldly goods. And that, the Bible says, is idolatry. And idolatry cannot thrive in a heart filled with Christian hope, nor can hope grow in a heart that's focused upon this world. And so in order to cultivate the hope of the things awaiting us in heaven, we have to turn our eyes away from the things presenting themselves to us on the earth. Carnal pleasures, worldly goods, covetousness, and sensuality. And then the text breaks down the other part of the great category of sin that keeps us from a a cultivated hope, and that is the pride of life. My brethren, you are either proud or sensual, or both. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Sum up the world and the things that are in the world. Set not your mind on those things. Set your mind on things above. Do not live like that. Sensual, which includes the lower appetites of fleshly indulgence or the lust of the eye and covetousness, or on the other hand, the pride of life. And often in churches, especially in the more fundamentalist churches, the churches that have their Bibles and tend to preach against certain sorts of external sins, often the areas of overt sensuality are not as flagrant as this area of the pride of life. I, however, have noted that many have both problems. They're both sensual and proud, and often they go together. The proud man. Angry, with a settled indignation, bordering on revenge, showing itself frequently in a visible display of anger. Wrath, the violent emotion that boils up within me against others and perhaps even God. Malice, that state of heart in which I stand continually angry with another. And I long to see that other one get what he deserves. I wish ill upon him. I hope to expose him so others will nail him and get him in trouble. I tattle on him. It's malice that makes a three-year-old tattle on a brother. 
It's malice that makes a church member tattle on another. Unless that tattling is for the holy purpose of guaranteeing, maintaining, and increasing the unity of the church and the purity of the church, if your motive is to get his, to get what he deserves because you're angry, that's what malice means. Railing out of an angry, wrathful, malice heart comes bad-mouthing, screaming, riotous speech, protesting against authorities, blasphemy, cursing. And then the next thing, shameful speaking out of your mouth. All of this coming from a proud man or a proud woman. Whether it be detrimental words to the best reputation of your neighbor or unchaste words in your profane utterances, questionable jokes, sarcasm, often emanating from an angry disposition, put away shameful speaking, lying one to another. You see, the kind of people that are angry, wrathful, maliced, and angry against authorities are angry because the authorities are a threat to their continuing to act the way they're acting. And so they put down their authorities and seek to shift the blame. And then they tell lies when the authorities search them out to see what's really going on. They say, did you really do so-and-so? No, I didn't. They cover their wedges of gold in a knapsack and hide it in their tent and bring hurt upon the whole kingdom of Israel because they don't know how to live in the truth. They're coverers of their sin. And he that covers his sin will not prosper. Hope cannot flourish in the heart of a proud man. You can't have hope growing and be angry at the same time. Hope drives that kind of spirit out of you. When you set your eyes above this stuff, you can't get angry and frustrated the way you were when your heart was set on this earth. So the first thing you must do to cultivate Christian hope is a negative thing. Put to death the earthly mind. Get your mind and your heart off the things of the earth. Now notice, the reason that you have this problem with persistent pride showing itself in bad-mouthing, shameful speaking, outbursts of anger, and misery inside, and in the sensuality of this world, the reason all that's your portion is because you are a worldly-minded man. Your heart is in the world. You have set your affections on the world. You've set your mind on the world. And when the world doesn't satisfy you, you rise up in frustration and anger. If you had your hope in Christ firmly seated there, this stuff couldn't frustrate you. <clears throat> as soon as you begin to feel frustration, you'd run to the Lord and say, Lord, you are my portion. My heart and my flesh fail, but thou art the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. But it is the failure to cultivate such. Out of a heart that longs for this world's fame. This world's happiness. This world's pleasures. That Christian hope dims and dies. And then people begin to doubt their salvation. <clears throat> they begin to neglect the Bible. Because when they read the Bible it's a closed book. They begin to neglect prayer. Because prayer doesn't get them anywhere. They begin to neglect the fellowship of God's people. And pull back from them because they don't enjoy that fellowship. Those people are a constant rebuke to them. Those people are happy and they're not happy. And they don't want those people to be ha happy if they can't be happy. And so their hope wanes. So the first thing, put away the earthly allurements. The second thing, though, <coughs> that we undertake this morning is not the negative, the repudiation of earthly allurements, but the positive, the embracing of heavenly provisions. The embracing of heavenly provision. Verse 1 of our chapter says, 
If you then, or since you then, were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek the things above. And then verse 2 says, set your mind on the things that are above. Seek them and set your mind on them. Another passage says, set your affections on them. On the things above. What does he mean? Well, he literally means heaven. Set your mind, set your affections, and seek the things in heaven. Well, brethren, that's hard to do. You can't see heaven. We live in a world that doesn't believe in heaven. That's one of the reasons we preach this series. It's one of the needs that, that this kind of preaching is demanded in our time because people don't have hope. They don't think that heaven is there. They're not living for then and there. They're living for here and now. And so they don't think of heaven. The Bible says that's what you're supposed to be thinking about. That's what you're supposed to be setting your affections on. You're supposed to, as you live in this world and do the necessary things in this world for your livelihood and your service to God, have your mind fixed upon the world to come. You're to do what you do here with a mind to what you're going to be doing there. You're to do what you do here with a heart fixed on the glories there. The Lord Jesus himself, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. So every saint is to live this world with the joy set before him, looking beyond this world to the world to come. Seek the things above. But what is there about heaven? That is supposed to be so helpful to a saint who's stuck on this world. Well, that's where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. You see, our union with Christ leads our thoughts to Christ. And it's when your union with Christ leads your thoughts to Christ that hope begins to burn and grow and thrive in your heart. Because you cannot get from this world hope. You see this world. And how does a man hope for that which he sees? But if we hope for that which we see not, then we, we, we with patience wait for it. So it's in setting your mind on the invisible things in heaven that you're able to endure until they are your possession in your hands. But what's in heaven? Christ, seated at the right hand of God. Heavenly things, what are they? Well, let us think about them for a moment. It's where Christ is in power, in honor, in faithfulness, in the joys that are His by virtue of His obedience. That's where Christ is. When you're weak, He's sitting at the right hand of God. And you are seated together with Him there. Your power is in Him. Set your mind on that. Think on those things. Where is your strength? When I am weak, the apostle says, then am I strong. The Lord's strength is perfected in my weakness. Do not be amazed that the longer you serve Christ, the more mature you become as a Christian, the less you think of yourself. Do not be shocked that by now you're not able to stand on your own two feet by yourself and don't have to pray as much as you did when you were a younger Christian. The longer you follow Christ, the more you'll pray. The more you'll feel the desperate need constantly to pray. That's not a mark of immaturity and weakness. It's a mark of maturity and faith. 
The Apostle Paul, of all people, ought to have been able to say, well, why do I have to stop and pray today? I mean, I've got the ability to work miracles. I've, been, I've served the Lord for years. I've preached in all sorts of places. I've overcome stonings. I've overcome shipwrecks. I've overcome... God always takes care of me. Why pray now? And yet in the later ends of his ministry, he is pleading with other churches to strive in agony together with him in prayer that in his ministry the word of God may run and have free course. He's desperately aware of the constant dependency he is on the strength of God. And the Lord taught him that by sending him right after an ex- ex- Extensive and wonderful revelation that hardly, as far as I know, nobody else in history has ever had, in which Paul was caught up into the third heaven in a vision of some sort and saw the very things that he couldn't even tell us about in the throne room of God. Out of that experience, then God sent him a thorn in the side, some sort of an ailment, some sort of a nagging problem, and Paul's supernatural abilities and his gifts could not get rid of it. And he asked three times for the Lord to remove it, and the Lord says, No, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul states the reason God sent that thorn. Lest he should be puffed up. So that he, in the surpassing privileges that were his as an apostle, would not be puffed up and begin to rely on his own strength and his own confidence. Christ is seated in the place of power. Keep your mind there. Don't look to yourself for the ability to mortify your sin. Don't look to yourself for the ability to be good and to serve God faithfully. Set your affections and seek the things above. Put your mind where the power is and it's where the Lord Jesus is seated interceding for you. The place of honor, it's in heaven. You want to be honored? Be honored where Christ is. Don't seek the honor of man. Seek the honor of Christ. Where Christ is seated in power and honor and faithfulness. From that throne of obedience, that throne which is the reward of his faithfulness, he's faithful to you. Set your affections on that. Christ is also seated in grace, readiness to help, with a desire and an intent to help. Remember what he's doing there. Punch that brother and wake him up, would you, brother? Remember what he's doing there. He's seated at the right hand of God for the good of his people. He's seated at the right hand of God for you. He's interceding for you. That's why he's there. He's not there to gloat on himself. He's not there to to, uh, boast upon himself and say, see me. He's there interceding for you to this hour. Set your affections there. Think on that. Look to that. Seek that. That's the thing above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of the power on high. For you. You're there. You're here. He's there. And he's there with you on his mind. Look at him. What is he thinking of there? He's thinking of you down here. What are you supposed to be thinking about here? Him up there thinking of you down here. Set your affections where they belong there. Where he has set his affections on you. I tell you this will deliver you from many adulterums. Many an hour of discouragement, depression, and wondering if God remembered you will be delivered from you when you put your mind where Christ is and what he's there for. He's there at the throne of grace so that you may find grace to help in time of need. Not in time when you have deserved the help. Not in the time when you've so dealt with your sins that now you are worthy to ask for help. Not after you've measured up to a certain standard of biblical or spirituality no no when you have need 
You may go to the throne, not of works, but the throne of grace. And you may find grace to help in the time of need. What time of need? The scriptures don't define it. That tells me that I have the liberty to assume, therefore, that it's any need at any time. Seek those things above where Christ is seated in grace for you. And every need of yours is to be met at that throne. Is there anything the Lord has ever failed to do that you sincerely needed him to do? Anyone that has the breast to stand and say, yes, I needed something and God didn't give it. I welcome your retreat from this place because we have nothing to offer you. But I tell you, it would be the height of unthankfulness and the height of ignorance and blindness for anybody who has been with Christ at any time at all to make such a testimony. You wouldn't be breathing here if you hadn't had what you needed. You wouldn't have that little belly roll around your waist because you ate more than you needed if you didn't have what you needed. You wouldn't be out of breath and hard to stay awake if you had not gotten what you needed and more. You wouldn't be so self-centered if God hadn't been so abundantly merciful to you. He's never failed you. But how did he get to this place of power and grace? How did he get to a place that every one of his people that call upon him shall have what they need and nothing in the whole universe can stop it? He got it through the process of the cross. The cross of Christ. Which culminated a life of substitutionary obedience. As he loved his own to the end. Died for them. Bore their sins in his own body. Carried those sins far away. Rose again triumphant over our sins. Over death, over hell and the devil. Ascended and entered his reward of kingship. Ruling to and for his beloved bride. All through the process of his own obedience. He got to that place. Think about that. When you're tempted to sin against him. Think how he got to the place of offering you all you need whenever you call. He got there by not sinning. When you're tempted sorely in the wilderness and you think, well, how can the Lord expect me to resist these powerful urgings of the devil? Remember what your Lord resisted so that he could now be in the place for you to call upon him. And do you think he'll not give you power over your sins? You have not because you ask not. You think you can't conquer something that Jesus somehow can't get to you? Brethren, he is seated at the right hand of God for that very thing. He's seated at the place where benefits are abundant. The forgiveness of sins. Adoption as sons with the inheritance. Think about that a minute. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Just a short list of what you have where Christ is. He said, your life is hid with Christ in God. Ephesians 2 told us that we were raised up together with him and seated with him in heavenly places. So really what you're looking at, when you're looking at things above, you're looking at where you are. That's you. The saint of God is seated there. That's who you really are. That's what God has made you. In Ephesians chapter 1, there's a list of the benefits we have from Christ that are in his person at that right hand of God. Verse 7. In whom? We have our redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Think about it a minute. I want you to just run through a quick mental list of your sins. I want you to call them what they are. I don't want you to talk about my general generic sins. I want you to think in your own mind what they are. Go back to the list. Fornication. Uncleanness. Evil desires. 
pride, anger, ingratitude, evil speaking out of your mouth, covetousness where you have wished you had the car your neighbor had or the house your neighbor had or the pocketbook your neighbor had or the health benefits your neighbor had or the husband your neighbor had or the wife your neighbor had or the girlfriends your neighbor had or the Friday nights your neighbor had or whatever else it is you wish for. Think about all that stuff and all that sin and all that insult to God's goodness and all that rebellion and your, your obstinate attitude, your resistance to every rebuke and every warning and every exhortation. You're stomping around in your pride around your home, never repenting, never saying I sin, never saying I'm sorry, never asking forgiveness of anybody unless you think you're going to get in trouble and lose business. Think about all that. You have the forgiveness of all that in Christ. The forgiveness. That means God has canceled the debt. What sin can you present to the face of God this morning which Christ has not died for and hasn't forgiven? Oh, pastor, he didn't die for unbelief. Well, I hope he did because every single one of us was an unbeliever when he died. I certainly hope he died for unbelief and unbelievers because my, my sin of unbelief was stood right in his face when he died for me. While I was yet a sinner, he died for me. Well, but he didn't die for homosexuals. Well, such were some of you, First Corinthians says, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Well, he didn't die for... Uh, there's a lot of uh, certain colors of skin. Well, there is, there can be no... Bond or free or Jew nor Greek or barbarian or Scythian in Christ. Christ is all and in all. What color is Jesus if you want to be racially narrow about it? He's not altogether white, I can tell you. I would say he has a tinge of Middle Eastern about him. Probably a bit darker than most of you. You be careful that you don't shut out any race except Jesus' favorite race. You may get yourself shut out on that basis. Forgiveness of sin. Name a sin. Name a sin that is not forgiven in the blood of Christ. Name one. There's not one. All those who come to him and who come to him in truth have the forgiveness of their sins. Their trespasses. Plural. The multitude of them. Dear brethren, there shouldn't be a saint in this room walk out of here today without thanksgiving in his heart and his mouth. If that were all you had, the forgiveness of your sins, that'd be enough to shout for the rest of your days. All that stuff's gone, brethren. All that stuff's gone. You say, what about the things I'm still doing? God lets you still do some of those sometimes just to keep you in mind of what it is you've been forgiven of. That's one of the reasons that sins remain. You might forget you ever sinned if you went too long without it. Some of you forgot you did and it hadn't been very long. The forgiveness of sin. I don't know that there's a higher benefit. I don't know of anything sweeter than to be able to go to my knees in my study. Knowing that I freshly sinned. To be able to know that there is forgiveness upon my knees. Right there in my vile hearted study. Where I sin in every way in my heart and mind. And I go to God. And I lay myself before him. And I think of that one sitting at his right hand. Who has already paid that sin's price. And who's already died for that and risen above it and conquered it and delivered me from the devil. And I apply there and I find forgiveness and cleansing every time. And God is just when he does so. You can't beat that. 
And I tell you, it, it grieves me to have so many so-called saints who cannot say thank you to God. And who cannot sing a hymn past the lowest part of their little voice because they've forgotten, they've forgiven of their sins. Dear brethren, look upon those things which are above where Christ is seated and you and him having the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. The debt is canceled. Which of you, if you owed a hundred thousand dollars that you had stolen and you spended it, spent it and squandered it, and they caught you and said, you've got to repay it or you'll never get out of jail. And somebody else came and paid it off and you went free. Which of you would not go find that guy and say, thank you? How insensitive would you be if you didn't do so? Where are the nine who were dying of leprosy and outcast? Where are the nine? Set your affection on things above where you have the forgiveness of sins. And then verse 12. To the end that we should be under the praise of his glory. In whom you also having heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which is an earnest of our inheritance. Our inheritance. What does that mean? We have an inheritance. How did we get an inheritance? Because we were adopted as God's sons. We are joint heirs with Christ. Not only do we have the forgiveness of sins, we are made God's children. We are made his sons. Based upon the justifying grace of the blood of Christ, we have the right to become the sons of God. To whosoever believed on him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. What are you? What is seated at the right hand of God where you are seated in Christ? Fellow heirs with Jesus. Joint heirs with Christ. Heirs together of the things of God. To whom it has been given all things pertaining to life and godliness. As God's sons you have his fatherly pleasure. His fatherly favor. His fatherly readiness to take you on his lap as it were. Hear your prayers. Get your requests. Longingly give you what you need. Withhold from you what you sometimes want but don't need. Because he loves you more than you know about yourself. He loves you more than you love yourself. How many ways has God saved everyone in this room from his disastrous mind and motive and purpose because he treats you as sons? You're not under a slavish fear that somehow God's waiting for you to trip up so he can nail you. You're a son in the king's house. You're an heir to the throne. We are a kingdom of priests. That's a privilege. You daughters are sons. In the sense that you have the inheritance just as a firstborn. You are joint heir with Christ as, as a son. We're sons of God. Adopted as children. Not only that, we have access to God. Well, obviously sons have access to their father. The son doesn't have to get a golden scepter held out for him to enter the daddy's room. All the servants do. None in the kingdom can enter unless the king says he can come. But the son has free run of the palace. I've always wondered what it would be like to. And this is how, how can we even compare the two. But I've always wondered what it would be like to live in the, in the White House. And be one of the children of the president and his wife. I always wondered. And I, I think in some of the presidents who have let us in to see some of the ways the kiddies act. It's, there's a heartwarming experience there to see a kid under a president's desk in the Oval Office. Uh, playing with one of his toys. 
I mean, and you think, oh, boy, I, that's a pretty high place for a little kid to be toying around, isn't it? And yet there's something about that that warms the heart to see there's a father, and the father's position has granted the son a unique opportunity and privilege and position that none, none other in the country has. Well, you just multiply that and you think of the king of kings and his in his oval office in the throne room where he makes all these decisions of state that determine the outcome of all of history and you get to play under his feet and nobody else does you get to come and go as you please into the presence of God and make requests daddy did you see my dolly and God your father cares about all those little things don't you know it is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom that's what Jesus taught us. Not a sparrow falls that he, without my father. And how much more worthy are you than many sparrows? What a privilege. Access to God. When you bow to pray in Jesus' name, the holy great ear of God leans to hear and readies to answer. Because you're his children for the sake of his son. Dear brethren, there's not much better, higher privilege than that. You have power over darkness. There's no reason for the saint to be afraid of the devil. Because of his sonship to God, the devil can't hurt him. Verse, uh, Colossians chapter 1 is a great listing of this stuff. Turn there. Verse 13 of Colossians 1. It's sort of parallel to Ephesians 1. Perhaps where Ephesians would focus on the body of Christ, he being the head, Colossians focuses upon the headship of Christ, the church being the body. But in verse 13 of chapter 1, who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his, of the son of his love. Brethren, if you're a child of God, the forgiveness of sins and adopted as sons, the power of darkness has no hold on you anymore. That's why it's such a shame for a Christian to live in any sort of, in any area of defilement and let it be a master of his life. That's why it's such a shame for a saint to let any habit rule him, whether it's eating or drinking or any other thing, even more vile. It's a shame. The power of darkness is relinquished. You've been delivered out of the power of darkness. It's a shame for a Christian not to be able to lay hold on the promises of the Bible because God has delivered you from darkness. You ought to see the light. It's there for you. The Spirit will teach you His Word. If you but seek it with all your heart. You've been delivered out of the power of darkness. I tell you, when God's little children come into His presence, the whole heaven and earth wait our requests. There's not a king in the world that can do one thing if God's children in their prayers don't grant Him the permission to That's how much God's dedicated and committed to our praying. I didn't say that, that I'm, not, I'm assuming that his children are praying according to their father's will. But when God's little ones, knowing his word, come to him on behalf of the universe, the universe stands to wait what will be the outcome. I tell you, you shall judge. Back in that passage in 1 Corinthians where the apostle asked the church in Corinth to set up court in the church. Instead of allowing each other to go to secular court to sue each other to get money out of each other. 
where he condemns it and he says, don't you have enough wise men in your church that can handle these kinds of things among each other? Set up a church court and make these decisions and it's binding on the church membership. And he said, don't you know you'll judge angels? Can't you judge these little matters on the world? And I thought about the judge angels. We have a high position in Christ, brethren. The whole earth and heaven await your prayers. The nations of the world await your prayers to see how they'll live and how they'll do. The preaching of the gospel awaits your prayers. Because your heavenly Father who rules all that listens to you when you pray. He does not hear the cry of the wicked. The man that regards iniquity in his heart, God doesn't hear him. But God's children who love righteousness, he hears. What a privilege. The hope of your calling. The riches of glory you have as benefits of Christ's death. Not only this, all this advantage and access to God here. But brethren, you live your life with a confident assurance that someday you'll be sharing the glory of God himself. You're not going to be God's. But you're going to have the glory of God. You're going to be with Christ in glory. You're going to be manifested with Him in glory. The manifestation of the glory of the sons of God. We wait for it. We expect it. We live in the light of it. You have a promised future because of Christ. Set your affections where Christ is, where your future is secured. Brethren, you are there and you are headed there. Live with that on your brain. Live in the light of that. Repudiate what the world is doing and saying and affecting you with and its allurement. Turn your eyes away from that. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Repudiate the earthly things. Embrace the heavenly provisions. It says seek them. And I take that to mean a practical pursuit It means to spend your life doing what it takes to figure into your system the things of heaven. It means practically doing what you do to inculcate further in your thinking heavenly things. For instance, learn the songs of Zion. The Christian ought to develop a good hymnody. Not waiting on Sunday just to get them to sing it. And you hardly ever even know how to sing it then. Learn how to sing glories to God. You're going to be doing it for eternity. Well, God will teach me. God's teaching you now if you listen. Buy a hymn. Oh, pastor, that costs nearly $9. Nearly $9 for the worship of God. Teach the songs of Zion to your little ones. They may not understand all of it, but you put those songs in their hearts and they'll learn a lot more than you lecturing to them. Nothing wrong with lecturing, but make sure you put music into their hearts. If you don't know how to carry a tune in a bucket, get a tape. And let it lead your kids. And have family worship and sing. And in fact, it's one of the things that's neglected in personal devotions. It's one of the reasons you need to go to a closet. You don't want some people to hear you sing. But brethren, I tell you, one of the reasons that some of you read your Bible and pray and it never does get wet, never does get juicy, you're not not learning how to sing. I think you ought to make it a regular practice to add a, a verse or two or three of a good hymn to your devotionals. And if you can't put music to it, just read it. Making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
I tell you, it'll, it'll awaken your devotionals. Learn the songs of heaven on your way there. So when you get there, it won't all be shocking and new to you. Immerse yourself in the population of heaven. To judge by some, you would think that fellowship with the saints is the last thing they ever wanted. How will they do in heaven when that's all they'll have? Do you think God's going to let you live by yourself in a cottage, a one-room cottage, out in, on the outskirts of heaven, and we can only visit you when you let us in? Is that what you expect? You're going to be stuck with our fellowship forever. Obviously, that's not a biblical way to put it. You're going to delight in our fellowship, if indeed that's the fellowship you delight in now. You know why we make you come to church on the, in the stated meetings? It's not just so we can gloat over having power over your faith. We have not much interest in lording it over your faith. I, before God, I can testify that my motive and my brother's motive in having that as a rule in this church is so that you can have the fellowship of the saints in the worship of God on a regular basis, which you're going to be spending eternity doing later. And that's why it grieves us and gives us great concern when you act as though this is not a priority. We wonder, not, ooh, he broke a rule. We think, why would a Christian not want to be here? Why would a Christian never be here if there's any thought that there could be some sacrifice that would have to make you get here? Why is he never here when there's any interruption in his life? It bothers us when, that, when somebody lives that way. And eventually we do. We have to deal with it as a church. But we'd rather not have to do it that way. We'd rather your heart get it settled and understand this is the population of heaven here. God's got a prepared people for a prepared place. And he's preparing us for glory. Get to know us. Get out of your apartment, out of your living room. Get on your phone and get to see some people and cultivate. And when you see them, think of them as brethren in the kingdom of God and let your conversation take on that tone. So that after you visited with them, you don't have the impression that you, God's name never was brought up and nothing biblical was ever said and you wonder what, it, what makes you brethren. Cultivate that. Immerse yourself in the population of heaven. How do you set your affections there? Develop sympathies and longings for the pleasures of heaven. Some of you can't imagine enjoying heaven because it sounds so ethereal. And all the things you've had fun with so far are located in the center of your belly someplace. The taste of food. What's heaven going to be like? Most people in this world don't want to believe in heaven because it sounds like low-flying angels and clouds, and that doesn't sound very substantive. Now, that's not a biblical description, but it's, a, it's the myth that the world would have. Some of these movies that talk about heaven as though it's some sort of uh, angelic nuts and sort of fumbling idiots up there trying to figure out how they can get involved in the world. Uh, uh, one of these popular television programs uh, about some angel that floats around down here and gives little references to deity once in a while and oh, everybody loves him and loves that brethren that's a blasphemous program it's rooted in a blasphemy very enjoyable but it's rooted in a blasphemy the only highway to heaven I know is the Lord Jesus develop sympathies for the kinds of pleasures that heaven offers that's how you develop hope for heaven you're not going to hope for that which you don't want well, what's heaven? What kind of pleasures does heaven offer? 
Well, they're not primarily the satiation of your earthly appetites. They're things like holiness without sin. Righteous living where you pay your debts, you tell the truth. Everybody does. Where you're not taxed unfairly. Businessmen pay their employees a fair wage based on their work, and they don't create modern sweatshops on a minimum wage basis. But they estimate what's the need and what how much work's being done, and they pay. Where the employee gives to his employer a full day's work, all day, every day, and doesn't purloin and doesn't gripe. That's the way heaven's going to be. Where fathers and mothers and children get along in harmony because everybody's thinking of the things of others and not of the things of their own. You say, I didn't know there were going to be fathers and mothers in heaven. You understand the point I'm making. Heaven's where there's going to be righteous dealings, where folks are going to love one another and look out for each other's good. And have, people are going to help uh, each other prosper in the things of God. Cultivate in your mind those privileges and pleasures of heaven. And that will strengthen your hope of getting there. You understand that? You see, the reason some of you can't hope for it is because you don't want it. You want the idea, but you don't want the real thing. It's like marriage. Some love the idea of getting married until they're married and find out that the idea doesn't exist. It's a relationship between two self-centered and proud people who enter into various levels of struggle to adapt and adjust to each other. And it's not always easy, is it? Even with the best of saints. But when they remember when they were dating, they couldn't imagine anything more blissful than marriage. It's just the same old story of of the beautiful shaggy dog by the fireplace. But when you get into the shaking up of the fleas and the raking up of the hair, it's not the same. Dirty diapers sober a lot of young bride. A grouchy morning husband who was at the top of his game up until the night of the wedding. And now she gets to know the real slob can sober a lot of young, sweet, dreaming bride. Well, it's like that with heaven. A lot of people can't wait to get to whatever that is because it's supposed to be good. But if they started analyzing what's good about it, they wouldn't be impressed at all. And I know that because I watch the way they function when those kinds of things are offered them here. Oh, Pastor, the hymns that we sing, you know, I'm getting bored with them. Why? They're the old truth. They're the truth that saved you. What, what, what do you want? But I like, I like tapping my foot. Well, tap your foot. Be my guest. And I'm not defending dry and boring him today. I'm simply saying that that's not the point here. Truth is delightful in whatever package it comes. You can wrap those toys at Christmas in a brown paper bag with no ribbons, and I'll bet you'll get the same response you got when you, just before they ripped all that fancy stuff apart. You package the truth in its purity, and the saints love it and welcome it and cultivate it in their souls. Develop sympathies and longings for the pleasures of heaven. There are a lot more. Utilize the privileges and the benefits of heaven. Confession of sin. That's a privilege. Absolution of your sins is a benefit. Brethren, how often do you run to Jesus and confess sin and go away clean? I tell you, I can't list how often I do it, but it's a pattern of my life. It probably ought to be more. But I tell you what, it's not a privilege I plan to give up. I live in desperate demand for that commodity on a regular, hourly, monthly, weekly, daily, momentary basis. 
That's a privilege. Cultivate it. Use it. Confess your sins. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. Some of you, you still got your three-day waiting period before you confess. You think that if you, if you move a little bit further away from the feeling of the guilt, then maybe God will forget how guilty you were a little bit and it will be easier for him to forgive you. Brethren, God doesn't forget a bit of it. He looks for the, with the eye of eternity. He doesn't change in three days. He sees the filth and the vileness and the wretchedness and he knows the deserts of your sin all the time. And the only way you're going to get out of it is to run to Christ and get it forgiven by free grace. And waiting six weeks till you don't feel so bad about it is not going to change how God feels about it. He still hates it. It still deserves wrath. And he still forgives it freely for Christ's sake whenever you come. Why wait? Why wait? Why waste 72 hours when you can have clean conscience before God immediately? Pastor, that sounds hypocritical. That's the way the Catholics do it. They sin all week and then on Saturday they go to confession and they get it wiped off. And they think, that I'm not talking about that. But I'm telling you this, if you sin all week, all week and all week, and Saturday God smites your conscience, what do you think God wants you to do? He doesn't want you to say, well, it wouldn't be fair for me to get confession and forgiveness immediately. I need to do a little Protestant penance and wait three or four days. Brethren, that's, that's, not, a, 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 that's not a blessing to God for you to resist the free offer of forgiveness of sin. Do yourself a favor and glorify God and run in humility immediately whenever the sin becomes available to your conscience and get it forgiven. There's nothing, there's no, there's no antinomianism in that. Pastor, if you tell us like that, it's going to motivate a lot of people to just live in their sin. I doubt it. I tell you what it does to me when I run, when I run to God with the fresh, vile filth of my dirty conscience and He forgives me. I tell you what, it doesn't make me want to do it again. Not only do I not want to have to go through this ugly process of confession and the agony of it, and not only do I, I don't want to put him to shame again, and I don't want to have to, uh, have to deal with that kind of, I want to thank God and live better. The gospel never did produce antinomianism. A perversion of the gospel did, but not the gospel. Utilize the privileges and the benefits of heaven. Confess your sins and get freedom from them. Intercede for others and see God work. On their behalf. Make supplication for God. And watch the peace of God rule in your heart. Brethren it's all there for you now. This is not a second work of grace. This is not a secret. This is not a new plateau of Christian living. This is promised to every believer. Right now. Because you are seated together with Christ there. And God looks on you through him. And God hears you for His sake. And the only limit to God's capacity and willingness to answer your prayers is the limit of Christ Himself. You tell me where you would draw that line. Some of you who are so prayerless, why? Why? Don't you know your Father is delighted to give you the kingdom? And some of you are afraid to ask for a raise. And I'm not preaching prosperity preaching. I'm just telling you that God would do, what are these little things to God? Some of you are afraid to ask God. You have no problem telling all your friends what you need. Why don't you ask God? Lord, here's what we perceive as a need. Would you give this to me? 
as, as long as giving this to me would not cause me to lose you and leave you, would you give this to me? You'd be surprised how many things you'd have that you don't have because you didn't ask. Especially if those are things that delight God to give. Set your mind on heaven. What we're saying is that your inner disposition must be that of heavenly thinking. Your inner disposition. We're not saying that you're to avoid the comforts of the earth. We're saying you should not set your heart on them. The Bible says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. It's okay for riches to increase. It's a great benefit. Use it. But don't set your heart on it. What we're speaking of is mental discipline. We're speaking of a saint who is vigilant with his Bible and with his conscience and with his friends and family to be accountable to them. And and he's surrounding himself with guards against his own rotten heart. And he looks at himself at every stage and he says, what would the doing of this do to my soul? What would the accomplishment of this or the achieving of this or the obtaining of this do to my soul? And he thinks in those terms because he's always fixed upon heaven and his fitness for heaven and his preparation for heaven and the glory of his Redeemer who is in heaven. And he thinks, how will this act or this this tinge of thought affect my relationship to him and his pleasure and his glory? And he watches his life on that basis. And he lives his life on that basis. Well, Professor Edie asked a series of questions in this light. He said, what can wealth achieve for a man who has treasure in heaven? You set your mind on wealth, what can it get you? You have treasure in heaven. So what should you do? Give. Give your wealth. Give it. What's it going to get you if you keep it? You have treasure in heaven. What's earthly wealth to that? Or... What can honor do for a man who is enthroned in heavenly places? What honor do you want from men? That's why a Christian can take the lowest seat in the synagogue and that doesn't bug him because he's got a high seat in heaven. He he knows that his day will come. You don't have to promote yourself. You don't have to make sure all the rest of us know how neat you are. You'll get a consolation if you do that the way the Pharisees did. I don't want the consolation. I want the first prize. And that's in heaven. I'm not, I'm not looking for an earthly crown. I would almost rather not get glory from men. It would be as though the Lord would let me have that and not get glory from Him. I'd rather wait. There's a biblical doctrine there, brethren. Or what good would pleasure be for a man who is rejoicing in newness of life? Praise God. If you want honor... Let it get come from God because you've served Him and not spent your life trying to get others to serve you. What good would power be for a man who is endowed with moral omnipotence? You've got Christ living in you. There's no sin you can't conquer by the power of Christ. What good was earthly power to a man who already has moral omnipotence? The Bible says the man that rules his spirit is mightier than a man that takes a city. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Makes you bigger than Alexander the Great. Why do you want power with men? Our politicians and most of our leaders are so eaten up with a 
lust for power that it makes me nauseated. They're blinded by their power and their love of it. It's not even money any longer. It's power. And the fame of men. But God will bring them down. Why? Who wants earthly power when we have heavenly omnipotence over sin? Who wants fame when we can enjoy the approval of God? That's why you that work in jobs in which you don't get much praise and nobody will ever know. You that serve Jesus in his church in some capacity that nobody even knew about. The menial tasks given to Christ will receive their heavenly reward. And when you get that heavenly reward, not only is it everlasting and doesn't fade away, it's nicer and more glorious and wonderful than anything you would have gotten here. Dear brethren, be ready for the menial tasks because you have something much better in glory than the praise of man. Be ready to serve one another. As Bishop Wilson had said, the earthly-minded man miss all that. They don't understand this. Just as Esau, whose red pottage prevailed over his birthright, and later he was called a fornicator. Just as the guests in the Lord's parable turned away to their land, their oxen and their families from following Christ. And the Gadarenes wished Christ to depart from their coasts. Jesus healed a demoniac, and they said, Please leave. You're wrecking the pork business. You're disturbing the peace. Earthly-minded people do that. God sends them overtures of mercy, and they turn it into cursing. God gives them offers of repentance, and they turn it into blasphemy. God waits and waits, and they consider it means that he's lazy and unthoughtful. God rebukes, and they resent it. They, they think that God owes them something because their minds are set on this world. And until they get this world, they will never be happy. The tragedy is they never will be happy. Even if they do get the world. Because every time they get a bigger chunk of it, their appetite grows with it. But the heavenly minded escape all this. The power of the earth along with the sting and the pains of the earth. The heavenly minded escape that. He's able to sorrow not even as others who have no hope. The heavenly minded sorrows but not as the others who have no hope. The Christian hope that's cultivated in the heart of the heavenly minded man is not stung the way the heart of an earthly minded man is stung. Death has no sting. Not for the saint. It hurts, but it's not the sting that it had. That sting's been taken out. What can man do to me? What can the world do to me? What principality and power can hurt me? If God is for us, who can be against us? And when that hope is set firmly in a heart and cultivated, I'll tell you what, you will not be able to keep from being happy in spite of all your efforts. And let me say this. I'm going to go on record again. I've said it before, but some of you haven't heard it. I'm going to say it again. It is not the goal of this eldership to see how somber we can make you. We want to be sober. And in worship, we want to be careful that we're not putting on the circus. And we know that from up here, we're not going to make you out there feel happy in here. But we're saying to you, we would welcome singing as though you enjoyed Jesus. And we welcome happy faces and happy hearts. And we think there's something sinful about never being able to have one. I even believe that a, a maturing Christian 
develops a sense of humor. And where there's an absence of a sense of humor, a person's usually taking himself far too seriously. The Christian's sphere of being and his sphere of action and his sphere of enjoyment is totally different from his former state. He has been saved from that old man. He's died. So that it becomes contradictory and incongruent with sainthood to long for the temporal and earthly things and the pleasures of the former life. Brethren, if there's still anything in this world that you're hoping you get and that you're not going to be happy till you get it, that's inconsistent with what you are as a new man in Christ. And if you get it, you'll figure out that it wasn't worth worrying with. Nothing wrong with getting it. But don't set your heart on it. Don't attach your happiness to it. Use it for the glory of God. If you're rich, thank God and use it and be careful with it. If you're poor, thank God you don't have the worries that come with riches. If you're in between, appreciate both the others. And enjoy both of them. And watch how God uses all of us. We died. Our life is where Christ is. And our hope grows as we set our mind and our affections on Him and His things. And as we turn them away from us and our things. I may summarize this by saying this one thing. It's not foolish or ignorant or superstitious for you to be heavenly minded. And when people at work say, how are you doing? And you say, fine. And they say, how can you with such a stuff going on here, here in the office? It's not inane for you to say, oh, because my hope is not in the office. My hope is where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. You're supposed to be ready to give that answer for those that ask you a reason for the hope that is within you. So sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready to give a reason, an answer, when they ask. And if you do sanctify the Lord God in your heart, they will ask. Somewhere, sometime, they're going to ask. And you be ready to give them an answer. They're going to say, ooh. They are. they'll, They'll clear out of the room. You want to get rid of all that, all the nasty talk, just answer them properly when they ask for the hope, and they'll clear the room. They'll take their breaks in another part of the office. They will. One, though, sometime by night, will sneak back privately and say, tell me more. And those are the kinds God builds his kingdom out of. You be in the right place, faithful, with the right frame of mind, and don't let them cow you down and think you're nuts. And you glory in the things that are above that they can't see and you can't see. But by God's word, you know where they're waiting for you. And you'll find this hope growing in you. And you'll find this world diminishing in you. And you'll become a happy person. Brethren, it's very simple. You want to be happy? Quit trying to be happy. Be godly. Serve Jesus. Serve one whom you've never seen. Love one whom you don't see. Rejoice in one whose word is fixed and whose word is true. And the world will find its way to your doorstep eventually. If you haven't come to the first matter, we're talking about cultivating that which is within. Only saints can cultivate hope. If you don't have hope, it's because Christ does not live in you. And you don't live in Christ. You may come to Christ. God has invited you. 
He has commanded you to turn from your life of sin and to come to Christ and embrace him in faith and believe upon him with all your heart. And if you will, he will forgive that sin. He will turn you and you will notice a transformed life. God's invitation is to the sinner who has no hope to come where there's hope, the only place where there's hope, and to embrace a heavenly hope in the person of Christ, the Son of God. And you saints, it's unworthy of you to live another minute as though the promises aren't true, as though Christ has not succeeded and he's seating at the right hand of God, as though your sins are not forgivable, as though you're not a son of God and are under a slavehood. It's unworthy of you to continue to live another minute that way. Rise up and walk. Get off your palsied, crippled bed of doubt and diseased mind. Think on things above. Set your affections there and God will reward you amply in good time. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you first of all that you did give us help in preaching. And that even as we spoke of some of these themes in passing, our hearts thrilled within us that they're true. We thank you most of all, though, our God, that you, when we didn't deserve nothing, after having made us and given us the privilege of life and breath on a wonderful planet, and having suffered our rebellion against you and our rising up against you, and our fleeing from you, you in voluntary love from eternity and in unspeakable grace provided a redeemer and sent your own son and poured out upon him our iniquities and punished him in our place because of the great love wherewith you loved us. And you have now set our hearts in hope and made us to wait for the day when we shall see the one who left heaven and came to us and delivered us from our sin. O God, our Father, thank you for the hope that is within our heart that makes us overcome this world, that frees us from its fretting and its worry. And do hear our prayer that you may indeed by your Spirit work in us an increasing strong confidence and hope and make us to thrive with the joy of the Lord Jesus as we set our eyes and our affections on the things above where you are. Oh God, our Father, do a work in our hearts here. Rob us from the world, steal us from the world, spoil us from the world, and make us totally your own in our hearts of hearts. Hear our plea, because, oh God, you have caused us to hope. Answer your promises as we've called upon you as your children in Jesus' name. And make us to hope even more and then fulfill that strong hope in the soon appearing of your glorious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.